أعوذ بالله من شرور أنفسنا وسيئات أعمالنا من يهده الله فهو المهتدي ومن يضلل الله فلن تجد له وليا مرشدا وأشهد أن لا إله إلا الله وحده لا شريك له في علاه ونشهد أن سيدنا ونبينا ومولانا محمدا عبد الله ورسوله الذي اصطفى اللهم صل وسلم وبارك وترحم وتحنن على عبدك ورسولك النبي الأمي سيدنا محمد وعلى آله الطاهرين وصحبه الطيبين ومن تبعهم بإحسان إلى يوم الدين أما بعد فالسلام عليكم ورحمة الله وبركاته Usually at the beginning of an address, if you were late, you apologize. I'm not going to apologize. I came late on purpose. I came late because it's very uncomfortable to sit and listen to a description of yourself when you know that there's much more to be said that I'd be ashamed of mentioning in front of you. But I'm not unhappy that I did not come too late because I got still at least half of the qira'ah of the Quran by my friend, my erstwhile neighbor. We were neighbors in Cairo as students together, Sheikh Abdul Rahman. And that sets the tone for where we want to start today, inshallah. At the end of his qira'ah, he read to us a beautiful rendition of Qul Allahu Ahad. The very essence of the deen of Sayyidina Muhammad Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. The tawheed of Allah ta'ala. This deen of ours is not difficult. It's a simple thing to understand. The essence of the deen, this deen is ashhadu Allah ilaha illallah. I testify that there is no ilah but Allah. And that's what the surah is all about. The majesty, the oneness, the greatness of Allah. And secondly, he began the recitation with another beautiful ayah, Muhammadur Rasulullah. That's our deen. Ashhadu an la ilaha illallah, ashhadu anna Muhammadur Rasulullah. La ilaha illallah, Muhammadur Rasulullah. It was begun with Muhammad Rasulullah, ended with la ilaha illallah. And in between, the means whereby la ilaha illallah and Muhammadur Rasulullah was handed down to us. Muhammad was most certainly the most blessed and noble and greatest of the messengers of Allah. But our Nabi sallallahu alayhi wa sallam lived in this world for 63 years of which 23 were devoted to his mission. He passed away after 23 years of effort and his efforts would not have reached us had it not been that there were men with him about whom Allah ta'ala says, وَالَّذِينَ مَعَهُ أَشِدَّاءُ عَلَى الْكُفَّارِ رُحَمَاءُ بَيْنَهُمْ The ones who are with him, their qualities are such that when it comes to 
the kuffar, they are stern against kufr because that's what Rasulullah sallallahu came to be stern against. When it comes to believers, then they are most humble and meek and merciful amongst themselves. Tarahum rukka'an sujjada. If you want to see their lives, you will come into Medina, you will see them constantly in prayer, standing, bowing in ruku, making sujood. Simahum fi wujuhihim min atharis sujood. The signs of sujood were to be found on their foreheads. This was the messengers, companions. And the status of these companions was such that Allah Ta'ala described them in this Quran, but similarly described and boasted of them to the previous nations. He spoke about them in the Torah to Nabi Musa salam and his people. He described the companions of Muhammad who will come in time. They are not there yet, but they are a matter of pride that Allah Ta'ala boasts about them. Then Allah Ta'ala says, even in the Injil to Isa salam, he described them by a simile. They are like the small little sapling that grows. That's when Nabi Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam was just a small group of people around him. He returns from the cave and he announces to Sayyidah Khadija radiallahu anha his message and she, she accepts it. He announces to his little nephew Ali ibn Abi Talib radiallahu anhu and he accepts it. He announces it to his closest friend Abu Bakr as-Siddiq radiallahu and he accepts it and from there a small little group starts growing 13 years of concerted effort and much suffering and much trials and much tribulations but the sapling is growing stronger and stronger then comes the command to make the hijrah everyone goes on hijrah rasulullah sallallahu alaihi wasallam decides when i go my most trusted friend abu bakr will, will be with me during that particular journey and the two of them go on hijrah they're in the cave and allah and rasulullah sallallahu alaihi wasallam remarks to abu bakr ya abu bakr ma dhannuka bithnaini allahu thalithuhuma what do you think of a group two persons where Allah is the third one present can anything happen to such a mission this mission will come to fruition Badr will come Medina will be attacked Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam with 313 men will protect la ilaha illallah and Muhammad Rasulullah Badr will happen Uhud will happen the battle of the, the trench will happen one after the other these uh, tribulations and these trials and these battles will come but the sapling of Islam is going stronger all the time eventually came a time after 10 years in Medina Munawwara that Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wasallam fell ill he could not lead the salah any longer and he announced to everyone that Muru Aba Bakrin nas. only Abu Bakr can lead the salah in my absence when I'm not there when he felt a bit better he came out hanging on the shoulders of two of his family members Abu Bakr radiallahu anhu thought for a moment that Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam will come and lead the salah, you should stand back. And Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam indicates to him, Abu Bakr, stay where you are. He sat down next to Abu Bakr, he led the salah, Abu Bakr follows him and the entire ummah is following Abu Bakr. Adam braiding and foreshadowing what will soon come to pass. Foreshadowing what will come to pass when Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam will leave this world and the ummah will select Sayyidina Abu Bakr radiallahu anhu as their khalifa and the mission will continue, but not before the following. The last Monday of the life of Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. He was no longer coming for salah. Too weak to come for salah. They're standing in the salah of Fajr. And Abu Bakr radiallahu anhu is leading the jama'ah. And suddenly a murmur goes through the crowd. What is it? The curtain of Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam house has opened. If this is a mihrab of the masjid, 
An imam stands here, then towards that side will be the curtain from which Rasulullah sallallahu would normally enter the masjid to read the salah. And Abu Bakr radiallahu anhu, the sahaba, got very, very happy to see Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa Why were they so happy? Because from the corner of the, the eyes, they could see something. What was it? His face was shining like the full moon. He was smiling and he was beaming at them because this is the moment of يُعْجِبُ الزُّرَّاعَ kuffar. He was the one who planted that seed. That seed has come to fruit. Fruition, not will come to fruition. That seed has come to fruition. He stands, looks at them for a few moments, smiles. His 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 face says, "Anas ibn Malik radiyallahu like the page of a mushaf, shining like the full moon." A few moments, he stands looking at them, and Allah Taala says, "Yu'jibu zurra." This plant that has been growing. The person who planted that seed can see that seed has come to fruition and therefore he smiles. He smiles in approval of 23 years of effort. He is ready to leave this world and go to Allah. Those are the final moments of Rasulullah Now comes the mission. What happens to this mission thereafter? This mission continues. The first thing that happens is that in the Arabian Peninsula, people start becoming murtad. Abu Bakr radiallahu sends out the armies against them. And another prophecy of Allah becomes true. What's that prophecy? Ya amanu. Anyone who's becoming a kafir after being a Muslim, anyone who becomes a murtad today, know that. Very soon Allah will bring about a group of people that love Allah and He loves them. Allah repeats the sifa of the, the quality of the Sahaba. They are very meek against the believers, harsh against the unbelievers. That quality came through, that prophecy came through with Abu Bakr radiallahu anhu. So, if I now turn to the other two surahs that were read. There were times when Wahi came to Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam and there were times when Wahi temporarily ceased. And during those times when Wahi temporarily ceased, Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam would worry, will it ever come back again? Because there's a mission to be fulfilled. There is an entire deen to be revealed. There is a veritable revolution of humanity that must still take place. And that cannot just take place in Madinah Munawwara. It has to envelop the entire Arabian Peninsula. It has to flow out of the Arabian Peninsula and go to the rest of the world. Because this deen was not revealed for the people of Medina or Makkah alone. It was not revealed for the people of the Arabian Peninsula alone. It was هو الذي أرسل رسوله بالهدى ودين الحق ليظهره على الدين كله. This deen is for all mankind and it must reign supreme above all other religions. That was the mission. We know that Rasulullah sallallahu alaihi wasallam passed away when that mission was was not yet fulfilled. But how would it be fulfilled? By the next ayah that comes immediately, Muhammadur Rasulullah walladheena ma'ahu. Those sahaba with him, they will carry it to all parts of the world. So, when Rasulullah sallallahu used to experience a momentary cessation of the wahi, he used to worry. And Allah ta'ala would tell him that, ma wadda'aka rabbuka wa ma qala, your Rabb has not abandoned you, he has not left you alone. Isn't it true that you were once upon a time an orphan and he gave you refuge? Isn't it true that you needed things and he gave it to you? So the mission that he, that he set for you, he will see to the fulfillment of that mission. He will see to the fulfillment. And towards the end of the life of Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa he reveals the next surah that has come. Alam nashrah laka sadrak. O Muhammad, have we not opened for you a chest? That burden there was upon you. Have we not removed that burden? That was weighing so heavily upon you. 
وَرَفَعْنَا لَكَ ذِكْرَكَ You an unknown person in Makkah Mukarramah, the whole world will know your name. The whole world will know the name of Muhammad sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. We have raised your name. We have raised your mention. Everyone will know you. Your mission will come to fruition. Your mission will be fulfilled. فَإِنَّ مَعَ الْعُسْرِ Allah repeats it. This difficulty today, ease will come. The day will dawn when Islam will reach from the Atlantic on the one side into the depths of Central Asia on the other side. The day will come when Islam will reach from the Mediterranean down into the jungles of Africa. And the day even came when Islam reached these shores of Southern Africa. There was difficulty, there will be ease. So Muhammad sallallahu alayhi wa sallam, Allah, Allah says to him, فَإِذَا فَرَغْتَ So when you've completed your duty, فَانْصَبْ Then stand up. Stand up for your ibadah. Your connection with Allah ta'ala. وَإِلَىٰ رَبِّكَ فَرْغَبْ Your longings, let there be for Allah now. Now the time has come. So during this last few days, just before Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam fell ill, he came out of his house and he spoke to the Sahaba radiallahu anhum and says, there was a man and Allah gave him a choice. He had to choose between whether he wants to stay in this dunya or he wants to go to his Rabb. And someone starts crying. Someone starts crying. Sahaba look around, why is this person crying? Rasulullah merely telling us a story about a man. That man was Abu Bakr radiallahu who realized what had happened. Rasulullah had been given the tidings of his departure from this world. The one who understood was Abu Bakr radiallahu anhu. And therefore Rasulullah made a point at that moment to tell them that now when Abu Bakr was the only one who understood what I meant, I will tell you something that لَوْ كُنْتُ مُتَّخِذًا مِّنْ أَهْلِ الْأَرْضِ خَلِيلًا غَيْرَ رَبِّي أَبَا بَكْرٍ If I had to choose a friend, and I'll come back to the word friend, if I had to choose a friend in this world, anyone other than my Rabb, I would have chosen Abu Bakr. This is not just a friend. This is a special relationship that Ibrahim had with Allah Ta'ala. He was the Khalil of Allah. That relationship one can have with only one other and one other being. That can only be with Allah Ta'ala. For Rasulullah only with Allah. But had there been anyone else who would have been this Abu Bakr? He announces it to them and he said that Inna Abu Bakr. The one who has assisted me most is this particular man here. Rasulullah is giving indications of where this deen should head for. So Abu Bakr radiallahu anhu is prepared by Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa for this task. And thus the ummah goes forth. Thus the ummah go on this particular path. They've passed to us this deen consisting of what? La ilaha illallah, Muhammadur Rasulullah. The essence of this deen is this. This essence of this deen is that we have a creator. Our creator exists. He created us and he communicated with mankind throughout history. How did he communicate with mankind? through prophets that he sent. And in our history, in the antiquities of our history, certain events took place. And those events will continue to be commemorated throughout the course of history. Some of us know those events and some of us might not. Our coming together here today is for the purpose of renewing for ourselves our knowledge of what is the day of Ashura all about. One of those events that took place in the course of the history of the Anbiya, 
and the Anbiya were the greatest men that Allah Ta'ala placed on this world. Tilka Rusul, Faddalna Ba'dahum Ala Ba'd. Minhum man kallam Allahu, wa rafa' Ba'dahum Darajat. They are the messengers. Allah Ta'ala has raised them to a very high station. No man can be superior to any of those whom Allah Ta'ala selected for his messengership and for, for prophethood. They are the highest of creation and therefore we continue celebrating events that happen in the lives of those Anbiya. We've just gone past Hajj. And what was Hajj all about? There was Ibrahim and the family of Ibrahim, alayhimu salatu was salam. Events that took place when Ibrahim was called upon to slaughter his son, when Ibrahim was called upon to build this house. And we continue celebrating that event and that Kaaba and that Hajj and the Eid al-Adha. The Udhiyah that we have is commemoration of events that happened in the lives of the Anbiya to remind us of the great sacrifices that they had to undergo. If it was not for that, there would have been no deen. If it was not for the fact that some men were prepared to at the drop of a hat, at a moment's notice, Allah Ta'ala says, submit. They, they prepared to submit. Who was Ibrahim? Ibrahim was, When Allah Ta'ala says, submit, he submits. And then from the progeny of Ibrahim came Sayyidina Musa. And the Nabi, about whom Allah Ta'ala has spoken most in the Quran, the story of the Nabi about whom we have most information in our Quran is Musa salam. His story is repeated several times over in so many different surahs of the Quran because of the great parallels that exist between our deen and his deen. His people were an oppressed people. Islam started as an oppressed little minority in Makkah Mukarramah as well. His people were oppressed by the greatest oppressors of their time. Who? His people were oppressed by Fir'aun. This Ummah had its own Fara'ina as well. This Ummah also had people who were oppressing the early Muslims. And eventually a time came when Allah Ta'ala gave relief from that particular oppression. When relief from that oppression came about, then the significance of this day of Ashura that we know, that that significance was born on that day. And on account of that, on account of inna ma'al usri yusra, for, on account of the fact that there will be difficulty, but maintain your hope because at the end of difficulty there will be ease. Maintain that hope because every difficulty will be followed by the dawn of ease. It will come. Therefore, we are called upon to commemorate this particular day in the way that is prescribed in our Sharia. Now, this day was significant to the Arabs in Jahiliya already. It was known because the Arabs in Jahiliya were not completely without a deen. What they did have was a corrupted form of deen. They still had the remnants of the deen of Ibrahim salam with them. They still had some of that. And in that particular deen, this day was a day of commemoration to some extent. So Rasulullah wasallam used to fast on that particular day and so uh, did the Quraysh. But when he moved to Medina Munawwara, there was a new community there that had not been present in Mecca and those were the Jews. And the Jews used to fast on this day and Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam notices that there's a correlation. We are fasting, but they are fasting as well. And on inquiry, they revealed to him that no, this was the day on which Musa alayhi salam was saved from Fir'aun and therefore we commemorate it. And Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam makes a point of saying, فَأَنَا أَوْلَى بِمُوسَى مِنْكُمْ I have, I'm closer to Musa than you. I have a greater right to be commemorating this day than you. So whatever past significance there was, a new dimension of significance was added. And now Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa commanded everyone to fast. The command went out in Medina. If anyone had been fasting, let him continue his fast. If everyone, anyone has not been fasting, then 
let him continue the rest of the day as if he is fasting. At that time, the fasting of this particular day became incumbent. But that was for one year only. For that one year. The following year, Shahru Ramadan alladhi unzila fi al-Qur'an. Ramadan was revealed, kutiba alaykum al-siyam. And this fast of Ashura then became a sunnah. It was no longer obligatory. No longer obligatory. Now the obligatory fast was not one day in the year, but there was a great gift that Allah Ta'ala had given, the relief that was given to Musa, but an even greater gift was given to us now. The Quran was given to us in this month of Ramadan. So we fast not one day, we fast 29 or 30 days. And as for that one day, that becomes part of our super arrogate, our mustahab, our sunnah fast. Continue it still. Because it still has significance. That delivery from difficulty, that relief that comes after oppression is still very much a fact. Because this ummah will need to undergo similar trials in its future to come. Keep it alive. But the greatest gift to this ummah is not the relief to, to Musa alayhi salam. The greatest gift was this Quran that Allah Ta'ala had revealed. So it was replaced by the fasting of, Ram of Ramadan. It became a sunnah. And we continued. The ummah continued fasting with one, dif with one difference. Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi salam had said, to make it a point that this fast is part of our sharia. It's not something that we've imported from another sharia. He was fasting from before. Now, to make a point of difference, to draw a line of differentiation, Rasulullah says, next year, I will fast not only the 10th, I'll fast on the 9th and the 10th together, so as to maintain a line of difference between ourselves and the Ahlul Kitab. We will commemorate, but we will do it with a difference. Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam passed away before that could happen. But the deen as it was passed along was the deen, the essence of which was La ilaha illallah and Muhammadur Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa ala alihi wa sahbihi wa sallam. Now you might imagine why the focus upon La ilaha illallah and Muhammadur Rasulullah, all of us know it. Why do we repeat it over and over? Why do we link it up with what was read in the qira'ah as well? Because... In the year 11 after the Ijra, Rasulullah passed away. And this day maintained its significance as it was in the time of Rasulullah at the hands of the Sahaba. It maintains its significance and the Sahaba عنهم, and the Tabi'in after them used to regard it with the significance that it was given here. They continued upholding this particular day in the manner as described in the hadith of Rasulullah I have to add something and say that afterwards many other ahadith were fraudulently brought into circulation which ascribes the significance to the day of Ashura which it does not have. <coughs> to ascribe a significance and the connection now is not just to Musa salam, almost other, every other Nabi that uh, came out of a difficulty, somehow the other connection was made that this happened on the, this day. Adam salam, was forgiven on this day. And Yunus salam, came out of the belly of the stomach on this day. And Yusuf was saved. No, there is a hadith of that nature. It is not authentic. It's completely fabricated. We don't set store by any such thing. Yes, there is a hadith in Muslim Ahmad, which speaks about the ship of Nuh salam, coming to rest upon Mount Judy on that day. That hadith is not a fabrication. It's not 100% authentic, but it's not a fabrication. So it has some kind of significance, not absolutely authentic, that we won't reject as a, as, a, as a forgery, as a spurious hadith. But that's as much as we can say about this particular day. This is why we commemorate it, this is why we sacrifice, uh, or rather why we fast on this particular day. How do we commemorate this day? In exactly in the manner that Rasulullah did, by fasting.
Now there's one other hadith that some or the other came about. And this hadith says, مَنْ وَسَّعَ عَلَىٰ عِيَالِهِ فِي يَوْمِ عَاشُرَ وَسَّعَ اللَّهُ عَلَيْهِ فِي رِزْقِهِ سَائِرَ السَّنَةِ If on this day, you give, you give to your family without holding back, you give to them as much as you can, to your family, then for the rest of the year, Allah will see to your rizq. Around this hadith here, the ulama have differed. The ulama have differed. A large number of them believe this hadith to be a fabrication. Say it's not true. We count amongst those, Ibn al-Jawzi in his mawdu'at, he said this hadith is not the correct hadith. It's a fabrication. We count among those Ibn Rajab and Ibn Taymiyyah and Ibn Kathir. Many have said that this hadith is absolutely unauthentic and a fabrication. On the other hand, there's a number of ulama who have stated that the hadith does have some kind of authenticity. Imam Suyuti at the head of them all, Hafiz Zainuddin Iraqi, Hafiz Ibn Nasr al-Din al-Dimashqi have said that this hadith has some significance. So the idea of feeding the family uh, uh, liberally on this particular day does have some kind of significance. It's a matter upon, upon which the ulama have differed. That is not absolutely a fabrication. There is some difference of opinion. But this is as far as we will go with the day of Ashura. There are many other fabrications that if you put kuhl, you put antimony, surma in your eyes on this particular day, your eyes, you will never suffer from conjunctivitis. That hadith is not authentic at all. If you do certain things on this day, then for the rest of the year, this, that, and the other will happen. There's no such a thing. The significance of this day is rooted in the fact that Allah Ta'ala gave relief to Musa salam, from the tyranny of Fir'aun. And therefore, we'll continue celebrating in the manner that Rasulullah prescribed by fasting on this particular day. But back to my issue again. So why the focus on Tawheed and Risala? Because that is the essence of deen. Yes, we know that. But why do we have to harp upon it? Because with the passage of time, something got added to it. With the passage of time, something happened that changed the entire vision, the entire spectrum of this deen of Rasulullah is all about. We know that deen is about la ilaha illallah Muhammad Rasulullah. We can connect that almost just to anything in the Quran. I came in today and I heard Shaykh Abdul Rahman reading ayat and I can demonstrate to you Tawheed and Risala from the ayat that was read because you can do it from just about everywhere. It's the essence of what deen is all about. But with the passage of time, something happened in this deen. Became, it came to be under threat by foreign elements. Elements that wanted to change not only the structure of this deen, but the entire manner of the unfolding of the history of this ummah. You've seen with me the ayat. You've gone with me through this ayat. Where, what, was, what, what is Allah Ta'ala telling Rasulullah In essence, he's telling Muhammad, your mission will be successful. Why? Because I've given you such men around you whom I'm pleased with. I've been pleased with them long before they were even born. I boasted about them in the Torah and the Injil. They will carry this deen of yours forward. So when Wahi seizes, do not fear that success will, uh, uh, will fail in coming. Success will come because Rasulullah did not spend 23 years doing nothing. He spent 23 years preparing a group of men that will carry it forward. But a new vision started emerging from some quarters. A new vision started emerging. What is that vision all about? That vision says the following. This deen of ours is not just about Tawheed and Risala. There is something else, and that is called Imama. What is Imama all about? We know about Imama. The Imam who leads us in the Salah, he's our Imam. 
Sometimes the ruler of the country is called the Imam Al-A'zam, the, the person who is the Amir Al-Mu'mineen. We call him the Imam as well. But here emerged a new idea. A new idea started emerging from certain quarters saying that when Muhammad passes away, then succession to him is not something upon which the Ummah has any choice. Succession has to be only in the manner that Allah allegedly dictated. What did Allah dictate according to this particular point of view? That when Muhammad dies, then his position must be taken by his cousin Ali ibn Abi Talib. And that is not a matter of election by the Ummah, it's a matter of appointment and selection by Allah Ta'ala himself. And when Ali dies, he will be succeeded by his son Hassan. And when his son Hassan dies, then he by his brother Hussein. And when Hussein dies, then he will be succeeded by his son Zain al-Abideen. And he by his son Muhammad al-Baqir. And he by his son Jafar al-Sadiq. And he by his son Musa al-Kazim. And he by his son Ali al-Ridha. And he by his son. And so it goes on until there are 12 Imams in this particular line. That's not where the idea stops. Succession is one thing. It's a kind of thing which they call apostolic succession. Appointed by, by Allah Ta'ala, just like Rasulullah Sallallahu was appointed by Allah Ta'ala. Imagine if the Muslims in Makkah, the early Muslims or early people in Makkah decided that, okay, we'll accept La ilaha illallah, but uh, this issue of Muhammad being the Prophet, why can't Abu Jahl be the Prophet? We said Abu Jahl, we want Abu Jahl. You and I will be the first to say that's not Islam. So the same idea comes here with Imama. Rasulullah Sallallahu dies, there's no space for Abu Bakr and Umar. Who is the, elect, the selected, appointed successor is only Ali. So if anyone decides that I want Abu Bakr as my leader, he is as uh, unwise and as ill-guided as someone who said, I want, Abu, uh, I want Abu Jahl as my Nabi. You don't have a choice in it. This is Imama. This Imam is what they call Muftaradu Ta'a. To obey him is a wajib fart from Allah Ta'ala's side like it is to obey Rasulullah Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam. There is no selection, there is no shura, there is no uh, election of who will, uh, will lead the ummah. No, it is by appointment of Allah Ta'ala. And therefore, when anyone rejects it, then all of them become murtad out of the fold of Islam immediately. And this particular group made the statement that the entire group of 23 years of effort that entire group with the exception of three or four or five, only three or four or five, how many people were with Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam on Hajjatul Wada'a? Over a hundred thousand. And all of them, says this particular uh, group, all of them became murtad. All of them became murtad except for these few. Why? What's the logic behind it? Because they rejected the Imam of Ali ibn Abi Talib. A new vision was born of deen. A deen in which Risala and Nubuwa has now been accompanied by a new idea of imama. No, accompanied is the wrong word. Accompanied is the wrong word. It has been superseded by imama. Superseded. Because with the passage of time, this idea will grow. It will grow into something completely different. Now it is said that these imams, these 12 imams, of whom you've heard the name of about 8 or 9 or some, these imams are superior to the Anbiya. They're not just the, uh, the equals of the Anbiya. They're not just the successors of the Anbiya. With the exception of Muhammad Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam, they're superior to all of the Anbiya to the extent that their riwayat, their ahadith state that, you know, the Anbiya committed certain misdemeanors in their lives. Adam Alayhi Salam ate of the tree when he shouldn't have. Ibrahim Alayhi Salam told an untruth when he shouldn't have. Musa killed someone when he shouldn't have. And how did they get Tawbah? 
they get tawbah when they took the shafa'ah, the names of these imams, Allah, in the name of these imams, please forgive us. This is now what imama has become. Something that is not just the equal of nubuwa and risala, something which is superior to nubuwa and risala. A group of men that are absolutely infallible, completely above everyone else. Completely above everyone, with the exception of Muhammad sallallahu But they're superior to Musa and Isa and Yusuf and Ishaq and Yaqub and anyone else that you can think of. Now the first thing that strikes you is that if this was the case, why is the Quran silent about it? Why does the Quran say nothing about it? I mean, we read in the Quran, وَمِن ذُرِّيَّةِ دَاوُدَ وَسُلَيْمَانَ وَأَيُّوبَ وَيُوسُفَ وَهَارُونَ وَسُلَيْمَانَ We read the names of famous Anbiya, and we even read the names of Al-Yasa' and Dhul-Kifl, and we sometimes read about Luqman, but nowhere in the Quran do we encounter an Ali or a Hassan or a Hussein or a Ja'far or a Baqir. We don't encounter that in the Quran. This was on account of the fact that this theory of imama is foreign to Islam. It's something strange that was brought from the outside and slapped onto, grafted onto Islam when the Quran was completely silent about anything of the kind. The Quran speaks about Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wasallam. It speaks about the Anbiya before him. It boasts about the Sahaba radiallahu anhum. It raises their position above just about everyone except the Anbiya. Their position is high, very high, but not superior to the Anbiya. So when you come with something as strange, as foreign to Islam as this, then you need some very strong glue to make it stick onto the house of Islam. You need some very strong glue. You need some very, very powerful nails to make this stick on, let people, to allow people to actually continue believing it. And that glue was eventually found. That glue was found 60 years after the Hijrah. 60 years, 49 years after Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wasallam had left this world. For all that time, the day of Ashura had its significance as the day of the delivery of Musa from Fir'aun. And people fasted on that particular day. Rasulullah fasted, sallallahu alayhi wasallam, sahaba radiallahu anhum fasted. But then something happened. Something happened, and that was that the new ruler of the uh, uh, of the state had become Yazid ibn Muawiyah. His father Muawiyah radiallahu anhu passed away. Yazid was now instituted as new Khalifa. The grandson of Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wasallam, Sayyidina al-Husayn ibn Ali, had left Medina Murawwara, fled to Mecca. When the bay'ah was being taken for Yazid, he did not make bay'ah to Yazid. Whilst in Mecca Mukarrama, there was a city in Iraq called Kufa. And from the city of Kufa, there were many malcontents, people who were unhappy with the state of affairs, who were not happy with the fact that Yazid is the Khalifa. They started writing letters to Sayyidina al-Husayn. Asked him that come to Kufa, join us in Kufa, and we will support you. You lead us in a revolution against this illegitimate usurper Yazid. We do not want him, we want you as our leader. He receives letter after letter, messenger after messenger. He consults. Should I go or should I not? His closest confidants come to him and say that, Hussein, remember, your father had experience with these people. They betrayed him. Your brother Hassan had experience with these people. They betrayed him. Do not go. These people are not to be trusted. But he says, yeah, the letters in front of me. So he takes precaution. 
He sends his cousin Muslim Ibn Aqil. He says, Muslim, you go to Kufa and find out for me what is the state of affairs. Muslim goes to Kufa, speaks to everyone. He ascertains that things are ready. Hussein can come. The people of Kufa are ready to give their allegiance. They're ready to die for the cause. He writes to Hussein, says, Hussein, Kufa is ready. By all means, leave Makkah, depart and come to Kufa. Hussein departs from Makkah Mukarramah and travels through the desert. In the meantime, something has happened in Kufa. In Damascus, Yazid got to know that insurrection is afoot in Kufa. The people of Kufa want to revolt. So he sent a new governor to Kufa. Ubaidullah ibn Ziyad is sent as the governor of Kufa. He comes into Kufa with about a dozen men, not a huge army, a dozen men. Remember, these Kufans are in their thousands. They were ready to support Hussein. They, Ubaidullah ibn Ziyad comes into Kufa with his face covered. So they think, oh, Hussein has arrived. So they say, Marhaban ibn binti Rasulullah. Welcoming the grandson of Rasulullah. So he had to come and find out, is there insurrection? Is Hussein coming? When people think that he's Hussein, he realizes, yes, there is something happening. The first thing he does is rounds up all the ringleaders, imprisons them, tortures them, gets hold of Muslim Ibn Aqil, and executes him as well. And the people of Kufa, despite their numbers, despite their enthusiasm for evolution are cowed into silence, are cowed into immobility by a man with a half a dozen or a dozen soldiers around him. Suddenly they find themselves paralyzed. And Hussein is still traveling to the desert. Sayyidina al-Husayn ibn Ali is coming to Kufa because you had given him your word that you will be there at the moment of his need. <coughs> Eventually he arrives at this place called Karbala. And at this place, a detachment of soldiers are sent to him from Kufa. And this detachment of soldiers say that, no, you're not passing one step further. Sayyidina al-Hussein realizes that the game is up. Nothing further is going to happen. So he puts three choices in front of them. He says, either allow me to go back to where I came from, to Makkah. Alternatively, let me go to Damascus and speak to Yazid directly. Alternatively, I will depart from here and go to the border regions and spend the rest of my life in jihad over there. They do not allow him to do so. At the orders of Ubaidullah ibn Ziyad, a battle ensues. The battle starts. One of the most tragic stories in the history of Islam. Sayyidina al-Husayn ibn Ali, radiyallahu anhuma, over 60 years of age, loses son after son, nephew after nephew, on the hot sands of Karbala, fighting alone, just a small little group of them. And on the other side is who? On the other sides are some of those very men that invited him to come to Kufa. Standing on the other side suddenly, very, very loyal supporters of the Umayyad state. One after the other, they are slaughtered till eventually the holy blood of Fatima's son, Hussein ibn Ali radiallahu anhu majma'in, is shed. Sayyidina al-Husayn's head is severed from his body. The grandson of Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa the one about whom he said that this is Sayyidu Shababi Ahlil Jannah, the chief of the young men of Jannah, his head is taken from his body at the age of 61, 62 years of age, after fighting like a lion for a long time, losing family member after family member, his head is taken from his body and is carried from there initially to Kufa and from there to, uh, to Damascus. One of the most tragic stories in the history of Islam. Who were the guilty parties? Most certainly those who swung the sword that beheaded Hussein are the guilty ones. All of those who were standing on the opposite side, when he told them, let me go to 
Damascus or let me go to Makkah or let me go to the border and they did not allow the grandson of Rasulullah that liberty. All of them are criminals in the history of Islam and need to be, need to be condemned and regarded as such. They were all criminals but there were other criminals at Karbala as well. Those who told Hussein that come to us and we will support you and not a single one of them was there to raise a finger in his defense. What happened to them? No, they have an interesting history. For one year, they stayed cowed and immobilized. For one year, they remained paralyzed in their treachery. A year later, after this date, one year later, they eventually woke up and realized that we have been guilty. We have been guilty of something terrible. We caused the death of the one who we invited. We called him and at the hour of his need, we weren't there. So a group of them got together and they marched to Karbala and they spend the entire night before the 10th of Muharram, the entire night before Ashura, they spent it crying, lamenting, and wailing over their sin of last year. Their sin of deserting the grandson, the beloved grandson, the son of Fatima radiallahu anha, deserting him in his hour of need. They cried, they wailed, and they lamented. That was the first commemoration ceremony of Ashura. They cried, bitterly cried. And the next day, they decided to go after each one who was guilty for the killing of Hussein. Each one. And they started hunting them down. Shimr ibn Dil Jawshan, Umar ibn Sa'd, Ubaidullah ibn Ziyad. One after the other, they started hunting them down. In account of hunting them down, they became very popular. They became very popular amongst the people because people are saying now, someone is at least doing something. But someone rose to become the leader of this group. This person, his name was Mukhtar ibn Abi Ubaid al-Thaqafi. Mukhtar, as his name al-Thaqafi, he says he was from the tribe of Thaqif. This tribe was the tribe that inherited this, uh, inhabited the city of Ta'if. And Rasulullah sallallahu has a long history of Ta'if. We know the story how he went to Ta'if himself and how he made dua that perhaps one day amongst the people of Thaqif, they will be those who will carry the flag of Islam forward. From them came Muhammad ibn Qasim who took Islam to India eventually. But he also said something else. From the tribe of Thaqif, they will come a great liar and a great destroyer. That great destroyer would be Hajjaj ibn Yusuf. And the great liar was this Mukhtar ibn Abi Ubaid. One of the greatest liars in our history because he was an excellent commander and he had an excellent cause taking revenge for the death of the grandson of Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wasallam, but it went to his head and he started claiming that I am not just a normal person, I'm actually a prophet. I'm a prophet and in Makkah Mukarramah there is Hussein's other brother. His name is Muhammad ibn al-Hanafiyyah. He's not just a normal man, he is God become incarnate. He is Allah who has come to the world like Jesus to the Christians and he sends me wahi. He sends wahi unto me. Now when you have a cause and you have people who follow you, you can get away with a lot of these kind of things. So he started claiming that Allah has revealed to me that in our next battle, we are going to be victorious. And they fight and they are victorious. And you see that proves it. I'm receiving wahi and people follow him. And then he predicts again, next battle will be victorious as well. And they vanquish the enemy. And the idea grows that Mukhtar is really onto something here. This was the liar that Rasulullah spoke about. But eventually your luck runs out. So one day he predicted that Allah has revealed to me that I will be victorious. And it turned out the other way. They were not victorious.
So what happens now? Now comes the hijacking of Islam. The hijacking of Islam. What happens here? Mukhtar cannot admit and say that I was a liar. He cannot admit that I was a liar. So who was wrong? He's not wrong. He says, no, Allah was wrong. Allah was wrong when he informed me that we're going to be victorious. He told me that we'll be victorious. But at the time, Allah did not know what's going to happen. Na'udhu billah. For even speaking such, such words. But he didn't know. Now he's realized. Bada lillahi. Allah realized. He only now came to know what the future would be like. This moment there was born something called the, 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 the doctrine, the aqeedah, the belief of bada. Bada is a belief in terms of which you say that Allah says something now and afterwards realizes that no, history turns differently and Allah adjusts himself to history. So what had to be sacrificed? At the altar of Mukhtar, Allah's veracity, Allah's truthfulness had to be, had to be sacrificed. Allah turns out to be wrong, but Mukhtar is never wrong. This idea is not restricted to Mukhtar and these battles alone. Because eventually the question would be asked, because Mukhtar went about with this idea now, that from the Ahlul Bayt, from the family of Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wasallam, there are Imams who are Muftaradut Ta'a, Imams appointed by Allah whom we must obey. So when the question gets asked, but uh, how come there's nothing about it in the Quran? So the answer was, what are we going to sacrifice? Yesterday we sacrificed Allah himself. Now we're going to sacrifice the Quran. The Quran suffered distortion at the hands of the Sahaba. Those ayat were there once upon a time. You know the surah that was read in front of you? Alam nashrah laka sadrak wa wada'na anka wizrak Our children know it as well. But go and look in the books of the Shia. As much as they deny these, go and look in the books of the Shia. You will find it in the following manner. Alam nashrah laka sadrak wa wada'na anka wizrak Alladhi anqada dhahrak wa rafa'na laka dhikrak bi'aliyin sihrak That's not in Allah's words. That was added to give credence to the idea that the Imams were mentioned in the Quran, but someone took their, someone took their names out of there because the, even the Quran, the standing miracle of Sayyidina Muhammad Rasulullah Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam, which is continuously memorized by hundreds of thousands, if not millions of children uh, of Muslims all over the world, which Allah Ta'ala Himself said that I take the responsibility because I revealed it. Inna nahnu dhikra wa inna lahu Suddenly we find ourselves in a situation where the, 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 the truthfulness, the protectedness of the Quran has to be sacrificed at a certain altar. Which altar? The altar of this newfangled idea of imama that has now grown into the phenomenon which you call Shiism. Imama means Allah appointed certain leaders the Ummah have to follow. Shiism means those who follow that particular group of Imams. The partisans, the ones who support that particular group of Imams. This thing is born now. After the year 60, because of the death of Sayyidina Al-Husayn radiallahu anhu, a lot of sympathy was generated because Mukhtar and his followers went about Hunting down the killers of Hussein, so they become heroes in the eyes of the people because of that heroism of theirs, because of that status that they had, they could now put anything out to people, people would be prepared to accept it. Allah's truthfulness was sacrificed, the Quran was sacrificed. Rasulullah sallallahu ala habibi wa alihi wa sahbi wa sallam, he had to be sacrificed because he's now going to be said that he spent 23 years and he couldn't have achieved anything. All of his followers became kufar after his death, with the exception of a few. Islam had to be sacrificed. The success of Rasulullah had to be sacrificed. But this idea called Shiism, this idea called Tashayyah, that had to be at all costs, that had to be preserved.
The idea that someone has a position higher than the Ambiya. The idea that there's not just one, that there are 12 of them that are so superior to the Ambiya that the Ambiya, when they make dua, they ask the Shafa'a, the Wasila of these, this particular group here. The Quran had to be rejected. The Sunnah had to be set aside. A new set of hadith had to be fabricated. Had to be fabricated to make place for this particular foreign idea. The glue had to be very strong. Because if that glue is not very strong, then any logically thinking, rational Muslim will realize that this idea is not part of Islam. This is not part of Islam. So that, that idea, not only did it have to, the glue be very strong, but every year that glue has to be renewed again. Every year it has to be maintained to make sure that it will stick. So year after year, what would happen? People would get together on this day. And this day becomes a day of lamentation. Now forgotten in history is Musa salam. Forgotten history is the fast of Ashura. Forgotten in history is the reasons why Rasulullah salam fasted Ashura. And the Quran was, the words of the Quran were distorted and the meanings of the Quran were, were distorted as well. Allah Ta'ala speaks about Ismail and Ibrahim. And Allah Ta'ala says in Surah Safar, وَفَدَيْنَاهُ بِذِبْحٍ عَظِيمٍ that Ismail was ransomed by a great ransom a few years ago in our Muslim views. Our Muslim views in Cape Town. There appeared a full page article in which the author, may Allah guide him out of his ignorance and jahala, writes on, uh, on the tafsir of this ayah, Ismail was ransomed by who? Hussein was the ransom of Ismail. Hussein. Ismail was supposed to have been slaughtered, we know the story. But when he wasn't slaughtered, then what happened? Our books, even the Shia books of Hadith have the same thing. Then Allah brought a ram out of Jannah. But eventually, what happens now? Imama comes about. Imama comes about and everything has to be distorted. So they looked in the Quran, where can we find something? And suddenly they say, we found something. The dhibh azim that had to be slaughtered is Hussein. Hussein had to be slaughtered so that Ismail can live. Forgotten for the moment is the fact that when you pay a ransom, you pay something less valuable to you than what you're going to lose. You don't take the son of Ibrahim and ransom him by the grandson of Muhammad because the grandson of Muhammad is much higher in status according to the Shia than him. But that logic departed from them for a moment and they decided that we have to find some glue to make the stick. Gets passed off as Hussein had to be slaughtered for the sake of Ismail. History becomes distorted. The Quran becomes distorted. All kinds of facts become distorted so that this particular foreign element can stick onto the house, onto the body of Islam. It was grafted on. Now one year you go to a commemoration ceremony of this kind and you might forget about it but to maintain that it has to be done every year it has to be done every year and everything about it has to become sanctified one of the holiest probably the holiest of spots in this world is the land where our Nabi sallallahu alayhi wasallam lies buried and the Kaaba the land where the Kaaba stands we know what significance that holds in our hearts but even the Kaaba and the sanctity of that particular land had to be sacrificed for the sake of this particular foreign element. The Shias tell a story. In the book Kamilu Ziyarat, they tell a story that one day the Kaaba was feeling very proud and said, look how important am I. People come from all over to come and make Hajj here. 
And the Kaaba is feeling very proud in saying this and Allah Ta'ala says, silent. Do you think you are holy? The land where Hussein lies buried is many, many more times more superior than you. You should be pleased to be a humble and despicable tale of Karbala. The tale of Karbala. Be you the tale of Karbala because it was not for Hussein who lies buried in Karbala, I wouldn't even have created you. And if you continue with this boast, I will cause you to sink into the earth. Quiet, O Kaaba. The land of Hussein is much more noble, much more higher, much more sacred than you. Everything gets sacrificed at this particular altar. Those Sahaba radiallahu anhum, about whom Allah Ta'ala boasted in the Quran and the Injil. A few days ago, I was sitting with some friends, some ulama, and we were just discussing the issue of what? The ayat in the Quran that make reference to the Sahaba radiallahu anhum, in which the status of the Sahaba is elevated. I started jotting them down. Within literally five minutes, I jotted down close to 40 ayat. A few minutes later, one of the colleagues that was with me shows me 100 ayat in the Quran that shows the high status of the Sahaba radiallahu anhum. Those people about whom Allah revealed so many ayat, you've seen some of them we've, we've spoken about, and we can go on speaking about this ayat, not uh, uh, for a few seconds, hours and hours, days and days, you can speak about those ayat. They had to be sacrificed. They become the worst of creation on the face of the earth. You know, our youth, our young men, Allah bless them and Allah give them Allah give them guidance and protect them of the ADL. They came a few, how long ago, a few weeks ago, they came to the MJC in a meeting with our President Sheikh Irfan, myself and some of the other members of the MJC. And they brought us some printouts of chats that people have been having uh, with converse to Shiism from our community. They were of us. They were one of us. And they went over to the other side. If you see the words that were used, the worst elements of Mannenberg, Hanover Park, and uh, Lavender Hill that you can put together won't speak such words about their enemies. The worst of words are used to describe Sayyidina Amir al-Mu'minin Umar ibn al-Khattab radiyallahu anhu. The worst of words is used to describe Sayyidina Amir al-Mu'minin Abu Bakr al-Siddiq radiyallahu anhu. The most terrible language is used to speak about Sayyidina Amir al-Mu'mineen, Uthman ibn Affan radiyallahu anhu. What is it that makes people, that turn people who were, who had been breastfed by mothers who are the Ahlul Sunnah wal Jama'ah, what makes them turn into such inveterate, hostile, and downright despicable enemies of the Sahaba radiyallahu anhum? What makes it that makes a person overlook 100 ayat of the Quran for some fabricated, contrived extracts from the Quran which do not even refer to what the Shia want them to say? It's probably time, number one, that we start educating ourselves on these, the ahadith, and most importantly, the ayat among the, about the sahaba radiallahu anhum. Because without that knowledge, more and more of us can be, be feared that more and more will become of those that use this very, very worst type of gutter language against the sahaba radiallahu anhum. More and more of that can, can happen. How does it happen? You will see in a few days time, how does it happen? It happens through the whipping up of emotions during these Ashura ceremonies that the Shia have been having for hundreds of years now. This is that very powerful glue that robs the intelligent man of his reason, that robs the rational person of his intelligence and makes him turn into an automaton that will believe just whatever you put into his mind at that particular moment. Look what happens in the rest of the world. The emotions are swept up to such a level that a man takes a chain 
to which he has tied a number of naked blades and he whips it over the over his shoulder onto his back. Let the blood flow from it because he wants to experience the pain of Sayyidina Al-Husayn. Then he takes his little baby and he takes a knife and cuts open the head of the baby so that the blood must flow. That is not the deen of Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. That's not the deen of Ali ibn Abi Talib and Fatima al-Zahra radiyallahu anhumah. That's not the deen of the Ahlul Bayt nor of the Sahaba radiyallahu anhum. But when you try and graft such a foreign element, such a strange, such, such an incongruous element onto the body of Islam, you, what did I say? You need some very powerful glue. You need a very powerful bandage. And that bandage is this. The stories that are being told about how Hussein passed away have passed into the realm of fantasy a long time ago. Pass into fantasy and people who normally are very reasonable, very sane, very reliable people lose their minds completely. And they go on like people uh, who have no concern for themselves or for the image of this deen that is being portrayed to others. And all the other sufferings of the ummah. What about the day when Umar ibn al-Khattab was murdered? When Uthman ibn Affan was murdered? Oh, very good that we're speaking about the, the, the murder of Sayyidina Umar Because along with the commemoration of this day here, the 10th of Muharram, there's another ceremony. Maybe our uh, Shias here in Cape Town have not yet started commemorating it. But in Iran, there's a place called Kashan. And in Kashan, some three, four, five centuries ago, they discovered a grave. And suddenly this grave was made out to be the grave of a person whom they call Baba Shujauddin. The courageous person of this deen. Who's Baba Shujauddin? They say, this is that person who killed Omar. No, that person who killed Omar, that was in Medina. In the 26th day after the Hijrah, he was killed immediately and his body was uh, buried somewhere over there. Suddenly, a thousand years later, they discover a grave in Iran. And they say, this is the person who killed Omar and we are going to com commemorate the death of Omar. They have a ceremony which they call, <clears throat> they give several names to it. Some They call it Omar Kushan, the day of the murder of Omar. And they celebrate that day. And suddenly in their books of hadith, you find that one day Rasulullah sallallahu called his daughter and his son-in-law and his grandchildren and prepared a feast for them. And they say this day was the ninth of Rabi'ul Awwal. And he prepared a feast for them and he tells his grandchildren, eat my children, enjoy yourself because on this day the Fir'aun of this ummah will be destroyed. That was Umar ibn al-Khattab, he says. That this day, this Umar ibn al-Khattab, the Fir'aun of this ummah will be destroyed. By the way, Sayyidina Umar radiallahu anhu did not die. He was not murdered in the 9th of Rabi'ul Awwal. He died at about the 26th, 27th of Dhul Hijjah. But history had to be what? History had to be distorted and warped. They had to find some day, they had to find some grave. They come together and they celebrate the killing of Sayyidina Umar ibn al-Khattab radiallahu anhu. Amidst all of this, Amidst all of this, we are being asked to maintain unity. To maintain unity, stand together for the sake of Islam. In 1979, something happened. Iran had been going, undergoing trials and tribulation, turmoil, political turmoil for a long time. You know, the moment you discover oil in your country, then kiss it goodbye. Because problems are going to come. So there was a person who had taken over the, the reins of government, aborted or rather got rid of the old Qajar regime and made himself, he used to be an army colonel, he made himself the ruler of Iran, he called himself Riza Shah Pahlawi. And he started ruling the country with an iron fist. And he had a lot of opposition from many people, but eventually he put his country on the way to modernization. But then oil was discovered in Iran. 
And when all is discovered, then the international powers start creeping up on you. And the world was then steadily getting towards the First World War, Second World War, and then the Cold War that came thereafter. So when oil is discovered, then you're going to find yourself trapped between the UK and the US on the one side, and the USSR as it used to be on the other side. So when he started moving too close in the direction of Russia, a coup uh, d'etat was generated and he was exiled from there. And his son was put in his place. He was exiled initially to Mauritius and then to Johannesburg. He was exiled to Johannesburg, eventually died, body was taken back, fine, be that as it may. His son was put in his place. But the turmoil, the political turmoil in Iran did not end. By 1979, the pot boiled over. The pot boiled over and a new strong man emerged in Iran, Ayatollah Ruhullah al-Musawi al-Khomeini. The history of the 20th century cannot be told without speaking about Khomeini and what he achieved in Iran. And that's now during the latter years of the Cold War, when the entire world is sitting that either you're in the orbit of America or in the orbit of Russia. can barely be on your own. You have to be in one of those two. So Khomeini came about and Khomeini ruled the country and he came with a slogan. His slogan was La Sharqiya, La Gharbiya, Jumhuriya Islamiya. We have Islamic Republic, we are neither East nor we West. And he coined a term, the two great shaitans. Those who will remember from the 80s, the two great shaitans, America being the bigger shaitan and Russia being the lesser shaitan. But they shaitans. Khomeini said it very, very clearly. These are the two shaitans of the world. And Muslims, Sunni Muslims, had been very impressed by the rhetoric of Khomeini. What he had been speaking about, many were very impressed by it because few other leaders could speak out at the time. And he spoke out fearlessly. When Sal uh, Salman Rushdi spoke about our Nabi in the manner that he did, Khomeini gave the fatwa, death penalty on him. No one else in the world did anything of the kind. So people were naturally impressed by what Khomeini said. I want to tell you about a person, Khomeini personally. This person came under the influence of the Iranian ambassador in South Africa. The name of the ambassador was Hujjatul Islam Muhammad Mahdawi. This person is from Pretoria, came under the influence of this particular ambassador. There might be those of you sitting here that might remember in the early 90s, somewhere around 89, 90, 91, somewhere around there, this very same ambassador visited what was back then ECOSA and invited as a diplomat to speak at ECOSA, the forerunner to the president Ipsa. He was invited to speak there and this ambassador went on, those that will be there, or that would have been there can tell you better, but I think something half an hour to one hour, speaking about what? Speaking about Abu Hurairah and his role in fabricating hadith. Is this what we expect from a diplomat? Is this the type of diplomacy? Our young students, impressionable minds, and you speak about them at length about how Abu Hurairah forged a hadith. Well, very clearly you can see that this man was more a propagator of Shiism than what he was a diplomat. And the person that I'm speaking about was one of his uh, convertees. He converted this person to Shiism. He used to be a Sunni, became a Shiri. He mentioned the following thing. He says, and 10 years after becoming a Shi'i, he speaks the following. He says, 10 years ago, I became a Shi'i. Why did you become a Shi'i? 
because of the slogans of anti-America, anti-Israel, anti-Russia, the big shaitan, the small shaitan, all these various shaitans. It was very, very attractive and it meant a lot to me. So that's why I became a Shi'i. But 10 years, by the way, the person is still a Shi'i. 10 years after being a Shi'i, he came to discover something else. He says, after 10 years, I've discovered something. I've discovered that the true enemy of Islam is not America, the big shaitan. It's not Russia, the small shaitan. It's not even Israel. The true enemy of Islam is the Ahlu Sunnah wal Jama'ah. The true enemy of Islam is Ahlu Sunnah wal Jama'ah. There might be those who will think that I'm talking, I'm sucking this out of my thumb. I don't want you to go and interrogate the person. I don't want you to interrogate the person. If you want to, you can do that as well. But do not interrogate the person, interrogate the facts on the ground. What happened to the big shaitan? What happened to the small shaitan? <coughs> The leadership of the Islamic Revolution in, not in Iran, in Iraq. The leadership of the Islamic Revolution of Iraq were living in Iran when George Bush decided to attack Saddam Hussein. What did the leadership do? Did they say, no, we cannot deal with the big shaitan. You're the shaitan, the bigger shaitan of the world. We cannot deal with you. We should keep you away because this is about Islam. It's about Islamia, Islamia, no Russia, no America. The leadership came back from Iran and with the help of the Americans were installed as the rulers of Iraq, of Iraq today. The, the big shaitan that was so bad once upon a time that all the Arab rulers who were in bed with the Americans were said to be puppets and were said to be uh, traitors and now Iraq became Shia territory on account of the very same shaitan. They said, they said, thank you very much for the reins of government. And they rather took the side of the Americans than of their allegedly Sunni brothers. And the carnage continues in Iraq up to the present day. A few years ago, not so many years, two, three years ago, there was a conference. At this conference, an alim from Iraq was supposed to attend and uh, deliver a paper telling us about what happens in Iraq. He could not make it, and I was asked to read his paper. There were places in his paper where I couldn't read any further. He speaks about, he speaks about the inhuman manner in which ulama of the Ahlu Sunnah are killed. You know, you want to kill someone, what do you do? Put a bullet in the back of his head, or do something of the kind. Put him in front of a uh, firing uh, squad or something. But what kind of hostility, what kind of devilish insanity is it that makes you hold down an alim? and take a drill and drill holes into his head to kill him. What makes, what drives people up to that level? If that is not too bad, as if that is not too bad, what makes a group of people take a little innocent Sunni baby whose only crime in this world is that his name is Omar. His only crime in this world is his name is Omar. Take him, put him onto a tray, put him into a pizza oven, Fry that little child to death, take his body out, garnish it with pieces of potato and tomato and send this body back to the parents and say, here's your little Omar. The, the insanity, the insanity that you see being perpetrated in Iraq today is not equal, not even equal by the worst that Israel's presence has to offer. What kind of hatred is it? It's the hatred that is whipped up in the Ashura ceremonies of the Shia year after year. It is that glue by which this idea of Imama is forced to seek onto this deen. Only that kind of hatred can bring about this kind of thing. And that was the big shaitan. That was a few years ago. 
And right now in this moment as we sit, and last week, when the bombardment of Halab, may Allah protect Halab and her people, Allah protect all of Syria and her people, but when the people of Syria stood up against an unjust and oppressive ruler, then those people who have for year after year been proclaiming to the rest of the world that the message of Karbala is that oppression will not go unchecked. When you stand up to revolt like Hussein stood up, we will be with you. Those people, where were they? Where were they? Where are the... From, from the west came Hezbollah, from the east came Iran, and from the north came the small shaitan, Russia. And all four parties together, Bashar al-Assad's forces, Hezbollah's forces, Iran's forces, and the criminal forces of Russia, all of them together, bombarding hospitals, bombarding schools, bombarding, doing things. Again, either on equal footing or even worse than the Israelis have. Because the Israelis have a certain level of Hostility, it does not come close to the insane hostility that exists within the hearts of the Shia towards the Sahaba radiallahu anhum and towards the descendants of the Sahaba radiallahu anhum. How does that hostility get maintained? Every year you whip yourself into a frenzy. Every year you whip yourself into a frenzy and remind yourself that these are the people that are responsible for the killing of Sayyidina Al-Hussein. We know who are guilty of the killing of Sayyidina Al-Hussein. And we know who are guilty of the betrayal of Sayyidina Al-Hussein as well. The very betrayers of Sayyidina Al-Hussein are the ones that took the name of Hussein afterwards and told the world that we are going to take revenge in his name and distorted this deen of his grandfather Sallallahu Alaihi wa Alaihi Wasallam to their own needs. They took this deen and made it when it was a deen of Tawheed and Risala and Nubuwa. They made it into a deen of Imama that's superior to everything else. A deen that can tell you the following thing. That Rasulullah Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam went on Mi'raj and when he arrived at the arsh of Allah Ta'ala, he found that Allah was speaking to him in the voice of Ali ibn Abi Talib. The same group that can tell you that this Quran, Allah has undertaken to preserve it, but no, he couldn't. Abu Bakr and Umar and Uthman and the rest of the Sahaba distorted it. Our finest achievement in history was cast aside. The truthfulness and the absolute unquestionable knowledge of Allah Ta'ala was cast aside. The entire history was distorted, overhauled, so that this foreign graft can sit onto the body of Islam. And it continues eating at the house of Islam. It has continued eating away like a corrosive acid that has been eating away at this body of the Ummah of Rasulullah Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam. When Islam, when the time came for Islam to spread, who carried the flag of Islam to North Africa? Who carried the flag of Islam into Spain? Who carried the flag of Islam into, uh, into Eastern Europe and into Southeast Asia? It was always the Mujahideen, the Du'at, the A'imma, the Ulama, the Ahl-Sunnah wal-Jama'ah. But after having given all of those sacrifices for deen, now will come along a group of people that will tell you a completely different history and will pour into the wounds of this Ummah the acid of the shayyah that will break, break up this ummah, corrode it, eat away at it. Because now what happens? The fight is internalized. The fight is no longer to the outside. We, we could see what happened in the days when there were slogans, when we said, we all uh, Muslims stand together in one soft. But we see what happens at the slightest opportunity. Where were the Shia standing? Where was Iran standing? Where was Hezbollah standing? Committing the types of war crimes against an innocent people that even Israel was never guilty of. Israel did a lot. But they will have to go very far to come on par with what the Shia are doing at this moment as you and I sit here and have been doing for the past five years while the entire world watches. No one will interfere. 
Why? Because who needs to worry about Muslims when they are busy killing themselves? It's happening in Syria. It's happening in Yemen. The old idea has come back. What is it? Don't fight them. Make them fight themselves. Make them fight themselves. By doing what? Just spread some rumors around about the Sahaba. Have a few Cape Townians spread ideas. Abu Bakr, Sadi, and Umar Sadai. Let them say things about our mother Aisha radiallahu anha. And what will happen? Do not make the mistake of turning this into violence. Our young men, you are going to be, you are going to be tested. You are going to, they are going to flaunt the ideas in front of you with the idea of making you be the one to, put, to throw the first punch. Making you the one to fire the first shot. We are the children, we are the descendants, we are the followers of the Sahaba Ridwanullahi alayhim ajma'in. When they work, they work for the cause of Islam. They did not work for internal rivalry. They did not work to overthrow this and overthrow that one. When they work, they work together to raise the flag because thus they were trained by Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wasallam. The 10th of Muharram is celebrated as a day, commemorated by the Shia as a day of this great tribulation, this great sacrifice of Sayyidina al-Husayn. That was in the year 60 after the Hijrah. And all of them know 10th of Muharram, 60 after the Hijrah. Why do they not look at a few other dates as well? There's an interesting date. Where are we now? We 7th, 8th of Muharram, somewhere around there. Next month is Safar. And the second day of Safar should be an interesting date as well. Because on that day, the grandson of Hussein also revolted. The grandson of Hussein also started the revolution against the Umayyads. His name was Zaid ibn Ali. Zaid ibn Ali ibn Hussein ibn Ali. He started the revolution in the city of Kufa. Let me tell you about that revolution. 15,000 men of Kufa had given him their bay'ah. They said, Zaid, come, you lead us, we will revolt with you. That's just Kufa alone. From the rest of the area outlying Kufa, hundreds and thousands more had given their bay'ah. He could easily count upon the support of 30,000 men. Much more than his grandfather, who had barely 70 men. So now, if ever a revolution was going to succeed, it would have been this one year. But... You see, the Ahlul Bayt were men of truth. They aren't people who hide their aqidah away. They are people who, you know, in front of you say one thing, and when someone else comes along, then they say something else. As a matter of interest, we fast on this particular day of Ashura. The Shia will tell you, don't fast. Why? It's not a holy day. It's a day of great harm to the Ahlul Bayt. And if you fast on this particular day, then you are actually showing Gratitude for the killing of Hussein. Don't fast on this day. And then we come to discover that Inna lillah, how come you say don't fast? In your own books. Sayyidina Ali ibn Abi Talib told the people to fast. Imam Ja'far al-Sadiq told the people to fast on this day because this day has a connection with Musa alayhi salam. So they have an answer for us. No, that was said in Taqiyah. There was a Sunni present in the gathering. So Imam Ali ibn Abi Talib said this just to uh, flabbergast that particular Sunni person. But when he was gone, then he said again, this they don't fast. They have all kinds of explanations for this, this being the most ludicrous of them. But they have several ahadith which tells you fast on this day of Ashura. Now they say we Sunnis fast because of, we hate the Ahlul Bayt. Allah is our witness that we love the Ahlul Bayt of Rasulullah We love them and we take issue, we take offense when someone presents that noble lion of Allah, Ali ibn Abi Talib, as a person who's too afraid, who speaks lies just for the sake of pulling wool over someone's eyes. That's not the Ali that we know. 
The Ali that we know is someone la yakhafu fillahi lawmatalaim. If he has no one and comes to speak the truth, he will speak that particular truth. But remember, if Allah's truthfulness could be sacrificed, why not Ali? If Allah's truthfulness, Rasulullah sallallahu courage could be sacrificed, why not Ali sacrifice as well? These are people who claim to love the Ahlul Bayt. And what do they do? They give us a picture of the Ahlul Bayt. Spineless people who cannot stand up for haqq. Spineless people who resort to taqiyya, to speaking lies just for the sake of, oh, let's pull wool over their eyes. That's not the Ahlul Bayt of my Nabi sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. That's not the family of our Rasul sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. They were men of truth who stood for truth. In their noble veins was flowing the blood of Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. One of them was this man Zaid ibn Ali. Courageous as his grandfather before him. So he starts a revolution. And he gets 30,000 people to give him their bay'ah. But the Ahlul Bayt believed one thing. And the Shia, they believe something completely differently. Because they were schooled by the followers of Mukhtar. They were schooled, they were taught their deen by Mukhtar the liar. And the Ahlul Bayt, what did they believe? The Ahlul Bayt, they came to Zaid ibn Ali. Just before the battle, they say, Zaid, before we go into battle, one question please. By all means, what I, what's your question? He says, what do you believe about Abu Bakr and Umar? Not about Allah and his Rasul, not about Quran and Hadith, not about Jannah and Jannah. No, what do you believe about Abu Bakr and Umar? Because under the impetus of the school of Mukhtar ibn Abi Ubaidah Thaqafi, they had been uh, learning a deen which says that Abu Bakr and Umar are the worst that you can find. But now they came to hear, someone says, that Zayd doesn't share your idea here. Ayikhlu is anas. He believes like the rest of the people are believing. So... They decide, before we go into battle with someone that we don't know whether he's on our side or not, they come to Zaid and they ask him, that Zaid, what do you believe at Abu Bakr and Umar? So being the courageous lion, son of a courageous lion, son of a courageous lion, grandson of Rasulullah sallallahu he doesn't hide anything away from anyone. And he says, Kana jaddi fa Those were the ministers of my grandfather. Those were the right hand and left hand of my grandfather. They were the assistants of my grandfather. So I have nothing but friendship towards them and I'll never dissociate myself from them. And then they look at one another and say, we told you, this man is not to be trusted. And they left him, 30,000 men, they left him with just about 300 men. All of them left the battlefield. They say, no, you can't be trusted. So what did Zaid say when they turned around and they walked away? He says, Arahum qad You've done with me as you've done with Hussein before. You've led me down the path and said, we're going to be there for you when the need is there. Yeah, I am alone. 300 men or so along with me. But a courageous lion doesn't back off. And he fights till he meets his shahada. He fights till he meets martyrdom in the path of Allah Ta'ala. Where are the Shia? Nowhere to be found. Why? Because the Ahlul Bayt believe one thing and the Shia believe something else. But the Ahlul Bayt will be sacrificed at the altar of the Shia. The Shia believe something in Ahlul Bayt are somewhere completely else. Why else do we have great, great amounts of the family of Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam on the madhab of Imam Shafi'i and Abu Hanifa, Ahmad ibn Hanbal, Malik ibn Anas, great amounts of them. If their grandfather had a deen which is different to the deen of the Ahlul Sunnah wal Jama'ah. Yes, some of them might have been deceived and gone over to the other side. But you tell me, if your great-grandfather, if your great-grandfather had an idea of deen, and he was appointed by Allah and he was superior to the Anbiya and he had knowledge and he was infallible and in his custody was the ilm of the early people and the later people and all the Anbiya. 
Why would you want to follow a fallible person like Bukhari and Muslim and Ahmad ibn Hanbal and Muhammad ibn Dirisa Shafi'i? So what happened here was this foreign element. This foreign element came into our deen and this element has been one of the most destructive, corrosive, divisive forces that we can ever find in this ummah. It's been around from, from day one. It's been around from day one. It will remain with us. It has come to our shores as well. I caution once again, do not be the first to get provoked and do something that we will regret because the moment the first punch is thrown, the moment the first shot is fired, this is a type of violence which never ends. The day when Sayyidina Uthman radiallahu anhu was murdered by people of the same ilk here that had been working against the, uh, the march of Islam, they realized that the strength of Islam lies where? In the unity of this ummah behind one Khalifa. When Uthman radiallahu anhu was killed, Sayyidina Abdullah ibn Salam was one of the ulama of the Bani Israel and one of the Sahaba of Rasulullah sallallahu came to those people and told them that do not draw the sword forth. Do not kill this man because verily there is a sword that has been sheathed against this ummah up to now. The day you shed the holy blood of Uthman, that sword will never again be sheathed. Never again will this ummah know the type of unity, fraternity, and friendship that it exists, that, that had existed with it for the first few years of its history. And history testifies to the fact that up to the present day, that sword remains unsheathed. This ummah is still continuing to kill one another. Be it in Yemen, be it in Syria, be it in Iran, how many of our ulama, how many of our young du'at, how many of them have already been killed and continue to languish in Shi'i in the jails of Iran up to the present day. The list of them is very, very long. And if you want to start speaking about them, it'll be tears to your eyes to think the extent that people had to sacrifice for the sake of the haqq by people who claim that unity of the ummah. Unity of the ummah and let's forget all the differences. No, the differences are real. And if we don't take note of these particular differences, we or our children might fall prey to them. And after 300 years of struggling to maintain La ilaha illallah, Muhammadur Rasulullah alive, when our masajid are echoing with Ashadu Allah ilaha illallah, Ashadu anna Muhammadur Rasulullah, a group will come along and tell you that you have to add a third shahada, which says that Ashadu anna aliyan waliyallah wa khalifatuhu bila fasl. That as well, you'll have to have a new idea of deen. But this new idea of deen is not just another madhab. It is not just another madhab like the Shafi'is and Hanafis and Malikis and Hamalis. No, not something like that. It's a complete new vision of Kitabullah, of the Sunnah of Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa of how we view Allah in his azman, his sifat, of how we view the success of the mission of Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa how we view the entire edifice and essential structure of Islam. And the differences are so stark that inevitably, invariably and inescapably it will end up in violence wherever else it has been it has always ended up in violence several years ago i conducted a series of lectures at the behest of our sheikh Irfan, our president in the Sari state masjid at that time i said just about wherever sunnis and shia exist together with exceptions just about everywhere they, they end up in violence against one another and they, back then i said just about everywhere at the present moment and that, that time, you know what I was thinking? With two exceptions. Two exceptions were where? Three exceptions. Lebanon, Syria, and Yemen. And what can you tell me too about Syria and Yemen? My exception which I made back then has been overturned. Wherever the Ahlu Sunnah and the Shia exist together, they will come to violence. It is something, it is a unique, a unique tool of division in this Ummah. 
a unique tool of division that shaitan Allah, has been so successful with this particular tool wherever this 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 item this entity has entered it causes split it causes splits in the ummah. Families will split apart from one another. People will eventually kill one another for the sake of the distortion of history that goes back 1400 years. The fight won't end because it's sword of Allah has been unsheathed against this ummah. It will not end. There's a person, a Shi'i alim, not just an alim of the Shi'a, but you know there's an organization called Hezbollah. Hezbollah, a Shia organization in Lebanon. He was the first secretary general of this organization. <coughs> His name is Sheikh Subhi Al-Tufayli. And those that understand Arabic can go and look at the speech that he gave that I want to quote here. It's on YouTube. You can have a look at Subhi Al-Tufayli, not a speech, an interview, in which he condemns Hezbollah's entry into the Syrian conflict. And he says all of those of Hezbollah's Kaders who are dying in the Syrian conflict are going to Jahannam. They are not Shuhada. And he, then he makes this particular point. He says for hundreds of years, for over a thousand years, we have been telling the world that Karbala signifies, Ashura signifies resistance to oppression. When a, when a ruler becomes oppressive, then you stand up against him as Hussein stood up. And when the opportunity presented itself, say, where were the Shia? What happened to the lesson? They weren't on the side of the oppressed people. They took the side of the oppressor. And therefore, says he, not I, not you. Subhi Tufayli says that all the lessons of Karbala and Ashura had been forgotten. Why? Because the ancient rivalry and hostility asserted itself. Remember what that person said? He came to realize after 10 years that the real enemy is Ahlul Sunnah wal Jama'ah. What defense do we have against this particular disaster? The only defense we have is that we educate ourselves. Learn about our deen. Learn and teach our young people about who were the Sahaba radiallahu anhum. Our history is neglected. It's when our history is neglected that people can come and insert every kind of idea into the mind of a student. A young man, give him something to read, distort his entire view. If we weren't the first to teach him the version of history as it really unfolded, someone else will come along and teach him a different version. So there's something that is required from the mimbars, from the mihrabs, in our makatib, in our madaris, what needs to be taught is not just the history of the seal of Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa but thereafter all of these important points that are going to be distorted in history, every child needs to know the fadail of the Sahaba radiallahu anhum. Every young man must grow up knowing what Allah ta'ala said about the Sahaba radiallahu anhum in the Quran, what Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa ala alihi wa sahbihi wa sallam said about them in his authentic ahadith, not just any hadith, in his authentic ahadith, in this manner we will resist. In this manner we will resist the corrosive influence of those that would distort the history, this wonderful, noble history of Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam and the Sahaba, Ridwanullah ta'ala alayhim ajma'in. With these words, I conclude. Asking Allah ta'ala to guide this ummah, to raise from this ummah that anger of history which it's falling into all of these trials and tribulations wherever it might be in this world. To save this particular part of the ummah in the southern tip of Africa, in this country of ours, from the division, the corrosion that might set in on account of this particular element called Shiism, that we do not fall into something similar. 
ربنا هب لنا من ازواجنا وذرياتنا قرة اعين واجعلنا للمتقين اماما ربنا اغفر لنا ولاخواننا الذين سبقونا بالايمان ولا تجعل في قلوبنا غلا للذين امنوا ربنا انك رؤوف رحيم واخر دعوانا ان الحمد لله رب العالمين وصلى الله وسلم على سيدنا محمد واله وصحبه